When I was a freshman in high school, I decided to run for vice president of my class. I did not know the first thing about student government, but I knew that, you know, I enjoyed leadership, and I also figured that the vice president didn't have near as much responsibility as the president did. <laughs> so that worked for me. There were a few other girls in my class who were running against me, and I got to tell you, I was significantly outmatched. They had a lot of experience with student government, and get this, one of them brought brand new ballpoint campaign pins for everyone in our class. It's not fair. But I had one thing going for me. I had a few homemade posters that said, in all caps, it pays to vote for Hayes. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I spent a lot of time on that. <laughs> but here's the deal. I think people must have taken that one literally. They, they may have thought there was some kind of actual financial incentive because I actually, I won. I won the election. I think really what happened is the two girls split the vote, and there I came. But I, I was really excited to have an impact on my school and my class as a leader. But over time, my excitement waned as I discovered that when you are in government, you get blamed for everything. The, the snack machine was out of hot Cheetos. My friends expected me to do something about it. Too much homework. I was supposed to fix it. The football team was terrible. Somehow that was my fault. So while I enjoyed aspects of student government, I eventually found that my calling was not in politics. Thank you, Lord. And I realized that being in government is a tough job. It's impossible to please everyone all the time, and you're almost always going to make someone mad. Some of you know that. You had careers in, in the political or government realm. We have some folks in our church right now who work for the city or the county. We have some who serve in law enforcement and emergency services. And you know that being a part of the government comes with its challenges. People expect a lot of you. And there's a lot of people who just generally don't like authority. So here's the question I have for us this morning. How should we as Christians relate to the government. That question has been a big question throughout Christian history, and most of the debate has revolved around one particular passage in Romans chapter 13. And to be honest, this passage, it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. And let's recall that the theme of this book of Romans is the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he's talked all about sin. And Jesus and faith, all these things we readily associate with the gospel. He's also dealt with the question of God's plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. All of that makes sense. But what does the government have to do with the gospel? Well, Romans 13 is a part of a section of this letter that is more practical in nature. You remember when Jeff Herman preached a few weeks ago that we saw this shift take place in Romans 12. Let's read those verses again. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul wrote this. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those verses mark this transition in the letter from gospel doctrine to gospel living. This section of the book we're in now, it's all about the implications of believing the gospel message. Or we might say, rather, how Christians should live. Paul wants us to see what it looks like to live as someone who's been transformed by the renewal of the mind. 
And one of the key aspects of Christian living, it seems to Paul, is how followers of Jesus relate to the government. But why? Why would that have been important to Paul? Let's think just for a minute about the historical setting of this letter. Paul wrote Romans in the first century to the church in Rome. Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. Yes, that Roman Empire, the most powerful nation on earth, which was known for its ruthless reign and unquestioned power. The emperor at the time, Paul wrote this letter, was a man by the name Nero, who was not a good man by any stretch. He was godless, wicked, and brutal to those who challenged his reign. Some years later, after Paul wrote this letter, Nero would bring about the greatest Christian persecution the world had seen until then. He would murder many Christians in many awful ways. So one obvious reason Paul included this in his letter was because these Christians lived in the center, of the epicenter of a secular anti-Christian government. They were likely in need and asking some questions about how to deal with this. We also know that before the reign of Nero, there was another emperor named Claudius. He kicked out all the Jews, including Jewish Christians. He kicked them out of Rome. So you can imagine how that also led to some concerns about how to relate to the government. Add to this the common teachings that Christians were not to be conformed to this world, that they were citizens of heaven, and that Jesus, not Caesar, was their Lord. You can see why this section would have been so important. We also know that Christians have historically used and sometimes abused this passage in multiple ways. Think about the American Revolution. This was a key passage used both to speak for and against separating from Britain. This was also a passage used by some to justify the Fugitive Slave Act that mandated by law the return of runaway slaves to their masters. It was also used again to speak for and against the civil rights movement. So what does this passage really say about how we should relate to the government as Christians? And how do we apply this to our lives today? Let's break it all down. Let's walk through this text verse by verse and let's see it for ourselves. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let's start there. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is, uh, it's funny, this is one of those texts that when Christians read, they immediately try to explain how it doesn't actually mean what it sounds like it means. Like for some reason, the default here is to say, yeah, 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 whoa, 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 but... There are times we need to disobey the government. And we want to jump right to the exceptions to the rule and miss the plain meaning of the text. And look, we're going to get to that today. We know our ultimate allegiance is to God. And we know that will require us at times to disobey our authorities. But let's don't blow past what Paul is saying and miss his point. Here's the command, plain as day. Look at it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That phrase, be subject, means to submit, to subordinate yourself. And I do think it's significant that Paul uses that word instead of the word obey. Could have used the word obey, but this verb here is less about a specific action and more about a general attitude that we should carry. To submit to someone, to be subject to someone, starts with a recognition 
It's an acknowledgement that someone has authority over you. And then it's a willingness to place yourself under their authority in a respectful and agreeable way. And certainly to be subject to someone implies that you're going to follow and obey them. But I do think Paul wants us to see this as more of an attitude than a concrete action. Who are these governing authorities he's talking about? Well, this is a general term in the Bible used to denote anyone in a position of leadership in government that rules over us. This passage is similar to the one we looked at at 1 Peter when we walked through that book. Do you remember these verses? 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Peter wrote, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice Peter says to every human institution, whether that's the emperor, that's the top dog, the big dog, or, that's the, or to the governors, that'd be more on the local level. So governing authorities, they're going to carry different titles, different responsibilities, depending on the form of government a nation has. We know here in America, for us, this is the president, Congress, our state officials, even our county and local officials. These are mine and your governing authorities that we should be willingly subjecting ourselves to. But Why? Why should we subject ourselves to these human governing authorities? Well, he tells us right here. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Here's why you should subject yourself. Because those who are in authority have been placed there by God. And this should be startling to us, a little unsettling, honestly. Our minds may immediately jump to the thought, well, hang on a second. What about those evil leaders or even those who are not Christians? Paul, are you, are you sure about this? But Paul doesn't qualify his statement, does he? He says, there is no authority, zero, nada, none, except from God. And if you think this is startling to you today in 2022, try hearing this in the first century sitting under the reign of Nero. Like we know we have leaders who hold values contrary to Scripture. We have leaders who have done some bad things But there is not a one of us who would trade our government for the early churches. What Paul wants to make clear here is that we do not take our government leaders and put them up against the Ten Commandments or hear their testimony or judge their character and then decide whether we're going to submit to them or not. But Paul says submit yourself to them, period, because God is sovereign over all authority. That word sovereignty, it's a word we we throw around a lot. We just sang a song about it. I love that song. And I know I'm guilty of using this term and not always explain it. So, So let me just clarify what I mean when I say that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is the natural result of three things we know about his character. Number one, his omniscience, which means he has all knowledge. He knows everything. Number two, his omnipotence, which means he has all power. He can do anything. And number three, his omnipresence, which means he has all presence. He's in all places at all times. You put those three together, you have sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his authority and lordship over all things. Practically, this means that God is never surprised. He is never helplessly watching things happen as we are. His sovereignty means he can do all that he pleases and he will do all that he desires. Now, the debate among Christians is to what extent God is sovereign. 
How does his sovereignty relate to the big things like natural disasters and sinful human choices and salvation? Does God plan all things or are there some things he simply permits to happen? I can't get into all that right now. It's a lot of fun to think about and debate. But I want you to bring this up because I want you to listen to these verses about God's sovereignty as it relates to those in positions of power. Listen to this. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Daniel said this in Daniel 2. He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar this in Daniel 4. He said, You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. It's not fun sounding. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Jeremiah 25, 9, God actually calls Nebuchadnezzar, who was a wicked king, my servant. And Jesus told Pilate, another wicked ruler, this in John 19, 11. Jesus answered him, you, Pilate, would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There's no authority except from God, and those in authority have been instituted by God. God is sovereign over all nations and all powers, so therefore, Paul says, if you resist the authorities, you are resisting God. Peter said we should be subject to the government. Why? For the Lord's sake. So ultimately, we're submissive to governing authorities, not out of obedience to them, but out of obedience to God. And those who resist authority will incur judgment. What kind of judgment? Look at verses 3 through 5. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. These verses are significant because they tell us that government actually has a good purpose. So often I've found that we tend to have a negative view of government, all right, especially in America where we value limited government and personal freedom. We don't like the idea of someone meddling in our lives and our choices. But we need to understand that government was instituted by God for our good. As Paul tells us here, God gave us government simply to promote good and to punish bad. He says rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They're to approve of what is good. He even says twice here that government authorities are God's servants for your good. When's the last time you thought of a politician as God's servant for your good? He tells us also that one of the roles of government is to bear the sword. The sword was a symbol of punishment, especially in this time it was a symbol of capital punishment. So the government, he says, has the responsibility to punish those who do wrong. And when they do that, they're actually carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And what Paul's doing here is he's picking up on something he talked about last week in the previous section that AIM covered, Romans 12, 19. He said, Beloved, Christians, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
So when a Christian is wronged or harmed by someone, we are not to personally go and get revenge or seek justice with our own hands. Rather, God has given the government that job. He uses that same word, avenger. Avenger, that's the role of the government. This is why we have. This is why we should be grateful for our police, for our justice system. While it is imperfect, it serves an important role in our society to bring justice to those who are wronged. And we should rightfully respect and fear those who serve in that role because they motivate us to do good and to avoid evil. So that's the role of government, handed to them by God to promote good, to punish evil, and to bring justice and order to society. But here's the question, right? What happens when the government doesn't do that? I mean, the world is filled with examples of corrupt governments and leaders. Even here in the United States, we know our government sometimes fails to punish evil and sometimes even promotes evil. What do we do then? Well, Paul doesn't tell us exactly, does he? He doesn't say. I do think it's significant that he doesn't say, hey, if the government's not doing its job, that's when you need to rise up and overthrow them. He doesn't say that. And we know in the early church, even in Rome, even in Nero's persecution, Christians never engaged in rebellion or anarchy or violent rioting. Jesus said this in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Do you think people wonder, Jesus, why, why are you just letting this happen? Why aren't you fighting back? He handed over to be executed. He didn't fight. And then when the disciples were taken into custody, they didn't fight. When Paul was carried off to be beheaded, he didn't fight. He said, that's because our kingdom is not of this world. We are not called to make sure that we're never treated wrongly or unjustly. Jesus actually said that would happen. But rather, we're called to represent his kingdom in the way we live in ours. Look, every earthly kingdom and government will be imperfect, but they still serve a God-given purpose in restraining the evil of the world. And our general disposition and attitude toward those in authority over us should be one of submission. And Paul gives us in these last verses a specific way where to demonstrate that submission. Look at verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. These are my least favorite verses in the Bible. Um, kidding. <laughs> kind of. But it's no secret that most people are not overly fond of taxes. Y'all thought I was dead serious, didn't you? You're like, oh boy, he's corrupt. No, no seriously. I don't know of anyone who enjoys looking at their pay stub and seeing some of their hard-earned money automatically taken away. We don't like that. But here's the deal. Paying taxes is biblical. We can debate tax law and how much is fair or unfair, but Christians should be people who pay what they owe. Paying taxes to the government was actually established by Jesus himself. Do you remember the story? Mark chapter 12, a group of people come to Jesus and they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He hates us. Terrible guy. Should we pay him his taxes? Jesus said, well, whose face is on the coin? 
They said, that's Caesar's face. And he said that famous line. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus called his followers to pay their taxes. And that means even when our tax money is used for things we disagree with. Our government uses tax money to support organizations that perform abortions. Does that mean we're justified in withholding our taxes? I don't think we are. Historians tell us that Rome had exorbitant taxes. They often extorted and defrauded their own people. Can you imagine the horrible things that Nero spent the tax money on? But Paul makes clear, pay to all what you owe, taxes, revenue, and yes, also respect and honor. That's Paul's command. That's his clear charge, which is consistent with the example of Jesus. It's consistent with the example of the early church. And it's straight also from the writings of Peter. Be subject to the governing authorities. But is there a limit to our submission? Well, of course there is. I mean, no one disagrees with that. Because Jesus is our Lord, we know he's our ultimate authority over all other worldly authorities. Any submission we give to another person in this life is limited by our submission to the Lord. So there's no one who disputes that there's a limit to the submission to the government. The debate is, rather, what is that limit? Where do we draw that line? At what point can we disobey the government? We see, I don't think that's the right way to ask that question. To say, at what point can I disobey the government, sounds like you're looking for an opportunity to do so. But that totally disregards the spirit of this text. We should not be looking for a chance to be a rebel and to buck the authority God has placed over us. We should be looking for a chance to submit. Like That should be our default. That should be the instinct of our heart. To want to be a good citizen. To want to honor and respect those who have been placed over us. Our question instead should be this, at what point must I disobey the government? At what point must I, in order to honor Jesus, refuse to obey an authority placed over me? And here's where I've landed with this. This is what I believe scripture models for us. Listen to this. Christians must disobey the government when they are commanded to do something that God forbids Or forbid to do something that God commands. I think it's as simple as that. And there are a few different places in the Bible we could go to see this principle play out. But there's two big ones we all know that highlight this idea. First comes from Daniel 3 where the government commands something that God forbids. King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to bow down and worship a golden idol. When clearly we know God commands people not to worship anything other than him. So they rightfully refuse to disobey God and face the consequences of their decision. The other example is from Acts chapter 5 where the government forbids something God commands. The disciples, they're called before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish leadership. And they tell them, hey, stop preaching, stop talking about Jesus. What did Peter say? He said, we can't. We can't do that. We must obey God rather than men. So they refuse to disobey God and face the consequences of their decision. I think it's important we look at the way in which they disobey too. And we see this with Daniel and his friends. We see this with the disciples. We also see this with Esther, with Jesus, with Paul. They are clear on their convictions, but they're respectful. 
They're not violent or angry or insulting. They simply explain why they must disobey. They give a testimony to their faith in God. And then they willingly accept the consequences that come their way. I think that's the pattern we should follow. Civil disobedience should be the exception, not the norm. Especially where we live today in a nation with freedom of religion. We should spend more of our time thinking about how we might glorify God in obeying Romans 13 than in trying to find exceptions to the passage. So with that, let me close with two clear takeaways for us today. Here's the first. Number one, does your attitude toward the government honor God? Notice the question. Notice the motivation here. We're not trying to please man. We're not trying to curry favor. We're not trying to get power. We aren't obeying because we necessarily agree with and like every decision that's made. We're seeking to honor God. We want to honor the Lord and our attitude toward the government. What does that look like? What does an attitude of submission look like? Well, I think we see one of the key words right there in the text. It's the word respect. I was taught as a kid to respect all people, but especially to respect adults. You remember learning that? When an adult talks to you, you should be listening respectfully. And when you speak back to them, you need to speak respectfully. You need to interact in a respectful way. It's kind of basic kindergarten stuff. Well, to respect government authority is to first off recognize their God-given authority over you. That's whether that be from President Biden to Governor Kelly to Mayor Bacon, who's the mayor of Olathe, to our local police. We see them as having rightful authority, and we treat them that way. And if we get a chance to interact with them, we listen to them in that way. We seek to obey them and honor them, and we seek to do so in a kind and thoughtful way. Our goal should be make those who serve to serve in joy, not drudgery, to be the kind of people they enjoy serving and hearing from, not dread. This also means that we don't slander them or speak harmfully of them. That includes on social media and the internet. Did you hear me say that that includes on social media and the internet? Now, it doesn't mean we can't disagree. It doesn't mean we can't have a contrary opinion. We all will at times, and we can. And thankfully, we live in a nation where we're actually allowed to say it and to express it. And to do something about it. Living in a democracy means we get to play a role in who our leaders are and what they do. And we can even go out and protest when we want to take a stand on an issue. There is nothing wrong with that. But even when we disagree and we want to push back on something, we can still do that with a Christ-like attitude. So let me challenge you to examine yourself this morning. Are you honoring the Lord with your attitude toward those in government? Are the media and news sources and social media feeds and things you consume online honoring the Lord with a submissive attitude? That's first this morning. Here's number two. Here's our second takeaway. Do your actions toward the government honor God? What does that look like? To do things that demonstrate submission to the government. We talked about one, paying taxes. Christians should pay taxes and to lie about your taxes is a sin something else we can do we can also seek to obey laws (laughs) and that sounds very obvious but this includes even laws or ordinances that we deem to be kind of silly like cutting your grass and respecting firework laws you know who you are I heard you 
<laughs> Christians should be people who seek to follow the rules. Christians should be people who drive the speed limit. Again, you know who you are. I know who I am. <laughs> Another thing we should do is seek to serve in our community. To come alongside those in law enforcement and the city council and the civic organizations to help them promote what is good. To help bring flourishing to our community. We should support businesses. We should support organizations. We should be involved. We should be out seeking the welfare of our community as Jeremiah told Israelites to do. And Something else the New Testament calls us to do is to pray for our leaders. I think that is the most important thing we can do. 1 Timothy 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for how many people? All people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One of the best actions we can take to honor our government is to pray for them. Yes, even to pray for the ones we didn't vote for and don't like. Another thing we can do is use our position of influence, whatever that may be, to encourage them, to call on them. There's nothing wrong to call on those elected officials to do justice and promote good and honor the Lord. Some of you may get the rare chance to do that face to face. Some of you may only be able to write a letter. And you know what? Some of you may even run for office. If that's something you're passionate about, you should do it. Christians should do it. As we've seen, serving in a position of power is a way of serving the Lord. And I think that's the final word for us, all of us, this morning. Whatever position we find ourselves in, our goal should be to honor Jesus. To show the world that he is our king. That because of what he did on the cross, dying for our sins and being raised from the grave to give us eternal life. We should demonstrate that he has our ultimate allegiance. And one of the ways we can do that, Paul says, is to be in subjection to those who are in authority over us. We can actually show our submission to Jesus by living in submission to those he's placed over us. And when we do that, that is a testimony to the world that our ultimate king is Jesus. Let's bow our head in prayer.